Hello, welcome back to Hey Look Listen, my name is Liam Sheehan. Throwing out another solo episode here, but uh, not quite intentionally this time. I want to peel back the curtain a little bit and kind of reveal the inner workings of Hey Look Listen. We suffered our, our very first lost content due to technical issues. wasn't a lot, but I think it's notable. I think it's almost like a rite of passage for for uh, podcasters, or at least the, the wise man who taught me how to make podcasts told me that. No, but it wasn't a big deal, but me and Owen were recording an episode and there were some technical issues and we lost some stuff. It wasn't a whole episode, but we began making it. We were getting into the chit-chat. It was great. I'm very excited about the topic of that episode, uh, but it didn't work. We lost everything we did and uh, that was like our our one little time in our schedules where we could meet up and it wasn't possible to do it again, but we're definitely going to rearrange um, shit and we're going to meet up again and we're going to reattempt that episode. Uh, I don't know. I just want to I just wanted to bring that up because it hadn't happened to us in this year plus year plus a few weeks of we've been doing this podcast and it like it, it burns it burns when it happens and I wanted to talk about it but I want to um I wanted to do an episode um anyway I wanted to release and I said I I I'd do a solo episode and um, it's kind of a last minute thing I was really busy Owen was really busy and now if everything goes to plan here I will be recording and editing and releasing this episode all in one day and what can only be described as rigorous podcasting. I uh, consulted my doctor to ask if that was too much podcasting in one day. And he said, who are you? How did you get in here? I'm not a doctor. Please don't hurt me or my family. But listen, I have a few ideas in the barrel for whenever I have to do solo episodes, ideas I'm excited to do. And um, I shuffled through them in my brain. And I was like, I think that top 10 PlayStation 4 exclusives is A, a really interesting one that I really wanted to do, but B, out of all the little ideas I have brewing, the one I could, I don't want to say crap out the quickest, because that's kind of A, it's crass, isn't it? But it's also really dismissive of my work. But let's just say it's the idea I thought I could defecate into content with the least amount of effort. But, but no, I wanted to do this one because I'm in a, a weird kind of um, halfway zone as a gamer where I haven't upgraded to like the next generation yet. I'm on here and I'm talking to you about video games. What do I know about video games? I don't know what the current stuff is like. So I still have my PlayStation 4 as my main console. And um, I mean, you know, I've been talking to my, my friend Kev, who um, who Kev, who who joined the podcast last time for uh, the Bloodborne episode. Actually, I really want to quickly thank Kev for um, helping me out with that episode. That was super fun. I thought he was super good at it. And I love that episode. But I've been talking to him and he has like a PlayStation 5. And he's talking about all his next gen life, you know yachts and better graphics but i love the playstation 4 and I, I i like the way it's still stumbling on like it's still like a, it's still a viable means for me to play games but it is almost kind of at the end of its life at the moment as well um it, it kind of its life is kind of over with the playstation 5's release but it, it's still getting game releases um and it's still out there and i just kind of want to go back and want to talk about the 10 best games that were on the PlayStation 4's um, life cycle that, that were exclusive to the PlayStation 4 because I do think it's one of the best consoles ever made. Not like I'm not even going on about hardware or anything or anything like that. I just think it has an excellent library of games and I want to celebrate the, what I think are the 10 best. And the 10 best that only came out on the PlayStation 4, even though I kind of break the rules a little bit. Uh, sort of like some of these games have been since ported to like the PC. Um, 
A couple of them have been ported to the PlayStation 5. One of them has even um, was released kind of on the PlayStation 3 at the same time as the PlayStation 4. So what is this list about? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But I'm calling it 10 PlayStation 4 exclusive. The best ones. And will this list lead me to talking about games we've already covered on the podcast? <laughs> Let's find out together, dear listener. But, uh, oh, before we get on to the, the main course, exciting news. Very exciting news. This will be the first episode of Hey Look Listen that will have a sponsor attached to it. Which uh, I'm delighted. Now, I wish... Um, I wish I wasn't doing this episode alone since it's the first sponsor episode because I, I, I feel a responsibility, but also uh, I don't really know much about the, the sponsor, so I kind of thought that the lads could have really helped. But um, but look, look, I am so I'm so unbelievably humbled that they'd sponsor us. We, we're being sponsored by um, PitchMeeting.com, the UK and Ireland's number one football forum for men over the age of 35 but below the age of 75 and uh, uh, they sent me some copy that they they wanted me to read Um, um, pitchmeeting.com come have a natter about the football are you a man over 35 but below 75 want to talk about that amazing hat trick last night or that abysmal decision the ref made then come to pitchmeeting.com where just like you, everyone spends their evenings watching the footy. Over 75 different forums with topics ranging from why don't players smoke on the field anymore? And I miss David Beckham, but I don't like his children. And uh, they also wanted me to say that they've added new legacy emojis. Use emojis from all the iconic moments in football history. We have emojis ranging from Maradona's godly hand. Cantonese furrowed brow, yellow card. So come on over to pitchmeeting.com. It's all balls. And um, yeah, thank, thanks very much for sponsoring us. I just have a tiny bit to say about the structure of this PlayStation 4 list before I get into it. Because um, I don't know, I, I, I'm not worried about what people think should be on top or what this game is better than this or something like that. But I just feel like I just want to say that number 10 and number 9 on this list I would categorize as excellent games that are sort of boring in their design. You know, sort of bland. You know, bland is a very negative word, but excellent is a very positive word. I still think they're very good games. There's something core to them, something intrinsic to them that I find um, very boring and very uh, emblematic of game design these days. And then the games I have at numbers um, 8 and 7, I think maybe are sort of interesting failures might be a good way to put it. They're, I think, brilliant games that kind of, you know, reach for the skies, kind of make big swings and sort of don't, they aren't entirely successful, but they're super interesting. They're super unique. And then uh, 6 to 1, I just think are all very neat games. So uh, let's get into it. Let's begin. Number 10 is a game that I've actually brought up in this podcast a couple of times and uh, usually as a negative I've kind of held it up as a symbol of I don't know design I don't like and I kind of want to course correct because it's actually a game I really like Uh, it is Spider-Man now everyone knows Spider-Man if you don't know Spider-Man look him up on the internet he is a spider he is a man but uh, no but the main thing about this game is that you know so many people 
love Spider-Man, of course they do. And what this game is, amazingly, is a huge celebration of Spider-Man, the character. And I'm not even talking about the narrative. I'm talking about just in the gameplay. And that kind of is most apparent in Insomniac Games' um, dedication to kind of replicating Spider-Man's movements in the gameplay. Uh, traversing New York City in this game is a joy and it feels amazing. It feels like you're, you know, you're watching that. You're, you're not only watching Sam Raimi's Spider-Man in 2001, you're, you're playing it. And I have a ton of respect for um, the efforts that they put into that. And it really reminds me of, like, go back a decade or so, uh, Batman Arkham Asylum, which, you know, they made all these cool decisions that you just felt like Batman. You know, they kind of really kind of managed to kind of use gameplay to boil that character down. And it, Insomniac absolutely did the same thing. And it absolutely has like a, a really solid Spider-Man narrative as well. And I like the, the versions of these characters. I really like this Peter Parker. And the villains are great. I love the, the Doc Ock they do in this game. So for a Spider-Man fan, it's an absolute joy. And it's such a celebration, such a love letter. Um, the reason why I wouldn't have it any higher than 10 really is... Uh, it's an open world game and not a very good one. And despite how fun it is to traverse New York City, like I said, and swing around as Spider-Man... It's still, you know, facilitating uh, quite a, a mediocre spine of a game. And I, what, what, I think my kind of soundbite for this game is that Insomniac Games managed to make me feel like a, a five-year-old playing, you know, a, a, you know, putting on a Spider-Man suit and being Spider-Man with their amazing control scheme and their amazing attention to detail. And they managed to make me grin like an idiot for an hour and then made me kind of bored about being Spider-Man in like hour five or something like that. It's just a kind of another open world game on a massive pile of uninspiring open world games, in my opinion. And all its Spider-Man-ness doesn't make up for that. But I love the Spider-Man-ness of it. I love like collecting suits in the game. You get new suits, they give you new abilities. But um, I don't even care about new abilities as much as like if you're, if you're going to be collecting something that's kind of just aesthetic, I think... A bunch of Spider-Man suits from the history of Spider-Man is something that you're just going to want to collect. And I thought that was great. And I think your mileage may vary depending on your love for Spider-Man. And I would consider myself a huge Spider-Man fan, but I'm not a big comic book guy. So I'm sure this is just the coolest game ever if you're like a huge Spider-Man fan. But as a, I would say, a big enough Spider-Man fan, I don't think the gameplay was quite good enough. But I, uh, I I ended up being more negative than I meant again. Because I, I even, like, outside of just swinging around New York City, I thought the combat in this game is super fun. That is a, a, another brilliant way of making you feel like you're a Spider-Man, just like you like you have the spidey sense to take on 10 guys at once. And it's very kinetic and it's very fast. But um, there's too much of it. Uh, so, buddy, like, I say that, you know, but by the end of the game, I was super bored of it. I was super bored of this game in general by the end of it, which is such a damn shame. Because when the narrative starts getting super interesting, when uh, all these villains break out of uh, uh, the prison, uh, whatever that prison's called, and, you know, Spider-Man's iconic villains are loose in New York City, when the, when the story really starts ramping up and getting really cool and nerdy, I was already kind of starting to wane on the gameplay side of it. And the kind of last third of that game, the narrative got me through it. I wanted to see how the narrative turned out, which is a compliment. But God, I wish, you know, if I was playing a, a, the last third of a game, I wish I was like really excited, not just kind of going, oh, see, I suppose I'll see this out. But um, absolutely deserves to be on this list. Uh, like I said, your mileage may vary. I think it's a great game. I just think I'll never love it as much as some people, but certainly worthy of number 10. And my number nine game is a very similar energy in the same way that uh, 
uh, Spider-Man gets a lot of um, mileage out of, you know, just, uh, you know, video games sometimes they are just really kind of oh, wish fulfillment, you know, and, you know, I play Spider-Man and it's cool to be Spider-Man in the same way that in Ghost of Tsushima, it's really cool <laughs> to be a samurai. Uh, the, the, the aesthetics of the game, like, as a samurai story is, is super cool and in that kind of wish fulfillment type way. But while Spider-Man has, you know, whoa, I get to swing around New York City and I get to stop these robbers in a car in this really fast-paced action scene. Ghost of Shima, my favorite things about Ghost of Tsushima is all the, oh, I get to um, take out a, a flute and walk on melancholic through a, a moonlit glade. It's very good at that kind of stuff. But it's a very similar story. I wish I liked this game more than I did. It's another big open world game that puts a lot of stuff on your map to go and do. And after a while, as much as like I, I grew up on samurai movies, I, I'm a big um. Hold on, let me push the ribbon of my glasses up my nose. I'm a big Akira Kurosawa fan, and I was just like, this, I was, this game was sumptuous. I was eating it up. I was like, oh my god, these guys clearly love the genre. Uh, this this is fantastic and. Yeah, I, I didn't finish Ghost of Tsushima, and I'm perfectly okay with that. I definitely got to a kind of a, a point where I was like, I, I'm not enjoying anything anymore. This open-worldness of this game kind of suffocated me. Which is a shame, because there's stuff in this game I really like. There's a lot of options of how to play this game. You can go stealth, you know, you can go guns blazing, or swords blazing, more like it, what? But um, I actually didn't really engage with the stealth aspect of this game all that much, and that's um, not really a criticism. Like, the option's always there, that's grand. Uh, the reason I didn't is because I enjoyed just the straight-up combat of this game so much. It's all based around different stances, changing your stance. And well, some stances are strong against certain types of enemies. So your kind of brain just gets rewired and rewritten uh, the more kind of stances you learn and the more different enemy types. So as you're fighting, you're just pressing buttons to switch stances. And it's very rhythmic and satisfying. It's not the most complicated, complex, challenging combat system ever put in the game. But when it's, like, uh, when it's done correctly, when you're in a particularly good fight and uh, you're just pressing the buttons and switching stances and making really uh, precise uh, sword strikes. It's really satisfying. So I'd run into a village and I'd just be like, oh, I think the game is definitely um, facilitating the option to stealth kill enemies and very methodically sneak through this. But I used to love just running into the center of the village and aggroing as many enemies as I can. The more enemies coming at me at once, the more busy the screen was with enemies. I enjoyed more because it just felt so overwhelming and uh, you're more just kind of like tap the button, triangle, circle, square. And I, I love that shit. I thought it was really cool. It's actually my favorite part of the game. Another very notable thing is that this was a PS4 exclusive because this is a, that's that's what this list is, and the graphics are stunning. And I think it's very cool that kind of at the end of the PS4's life, before we moved on to amazing crisp PS5 next-gen graphics, that the PlayStation 4 got a really beautiful send-off with um, Ghost of Tsushima, like uh, it's one of the most um, stunning games ever. And that's it's the graphics, it's the art style as well. It's it's the grass blowing on the wind it's, it's the vistas it's just a really stunning game and sucker punched um did an amazing job creating this world even though i still think it's sort of uh, a bland empty boring open world game but god damn it it's a it's a beautiful world and they, they gave a lot of options they uh they, they changed the aesthetic of the of what kind of samurai story you're doing so you can make the whole thing black and white i guess uh they call that kurosawa mode actually and that's another actually kind of problem i have with this game where it's definitely inspired by classic samurai films. It, it, it loves that genre, but um, it's a kind of a hollow facsimile of them. And kind of, it's so pretentious for them to go, yeah, you can make our game black and white and we're going to call it Kurosawa mode. And it's essentially a Kurosawa movie that's interactive now. And no, no, it's not. Kurosawa isn't just black and white samurai. It's, it, it's, it, it's a certain 
gentleness. I, I, can't, I, don't, I I'm not doing a film podcast. I don't have to explain why Kurosawa was great. That, that's, what's, that's what's great about recording podcasts by yourself. I just think it's really pretentious for them to go, we're putting in a black and white mode, we're going to call it Kurosawa mode. You know, it's like those old, 50, those old films, you know? No, no, that's, uh, that's nonsense and um, that's embarrassing for them. But what's, what's also very strange to me is that the black and white mode kind of kills um, the graphics for me a little bit. I mean, it, it is cool and I played it for a while. Um, it, it's kind of cool for, for a second, but um, it does a massive disservice to the beautiful world that Sucker Punch made. Uh, and so it's kind of shooting themselves in the foot. So I hope people play that not in Kurosawa mode. But yeah, I don't really have much to say about this game other than I think it's uh, very good. If someone came up to me and said it's like one of their favorite games ever, I'd get it. Uh, I don't think I ever want to go back and finish that game, but I thoroughly enjoyed the 30 or so hours I put into it. And uh, you know, samurais are cool and this game is cool. And moving straight on to well-meaning sort of failures um, with number eight. And this is a game that's kind of been forgotten, which is crazy because it was... A long time coming. It was um, this game that was delayed for years, I think a decade, and it was always like, yeah, every E3 or show or game show, whatever was coming, people were always like, well, they show this game. You know, where's this game gone? It, it, they first showed the trailer in 2000 or whatever, and it disappeared. And then there was so when it, when it finally started appearing again, when it reemerged, there was so much hype around it. And then it came out, and people didn't love it all that much, and it's kind of pop cultural footprint that dissipated immediately to the point where I feel like it's been completely forgotten about now so I kind of want to shine a light on it as well um, um, even though I can't put it higher number eight it's The Last Guardian a game I have much respect for and I'm just saying this now do I have I wonder what, what do I balance how do I balance my respect and my love for this game but it's the third game from Team Eco and Fumita Ueda who's just one of gaming's as far as I'm concerned one of gaming's most essential interesting awe-inspiring auteurs he's an amazing game designer his two previous games eco and shadow of the colossus i feel are super important games um and both two of my favorite games especially shadow of the colossus and i think this third one is very much a, a worthy add-on to those two games that kind of it's it, it certainly aesthetically very similar it's just it doesn't quite work as well and those those are also two games that don't like entirely work you have a lot of people kind of um discovering Shadow of the Colossus kind of late in life because it's regarded as a classic and I think it's great that people are going back and playing it but I'm finding a lot of people who play that game are like why does this game control like complete shit which is true it's just beautiful masterpiece it's just um, a brilliant representation of what games can do um, in their design yet it kind of controls crap and The Last Guardian has a lot of that and I, I think it's it's ambitions were too high and I don't think they could quite pull it off. And the premise is that you're this boy who's trapped in this kind of ancient rune and you're trying to escape it with the help of a kind of gigantic griffin creature called Trico. And I think, I hypothesize that one of the reasons why this game was delayed for so long is because they really wanted to have Trico feel like a real animal. I feel like a real wild, both a wild animal, but also one that was slowly kind of beginning to trust you. A companion, but not a completely reliable one because it's, it's an animal at the end of the day. And I think that's an amazing ambition to have, and it's an amazing um, spine to build a whole game around, in my opinion. Like, at the time, what were AAA developers, you know, spending money on? Let's recreate Kit Harrington and put him in space, Call of Duty. No, that's a shit reason to spend money and resources on video games. That's, like, the reasons why video games are bad. A developer going, I'm going to spend time and resources and money to try to make 
a living, breathing creature in a game that you have to interact with and uh, team up with and solve puzzles with and get through this world with is um, an amazing idea. And uh, I have a, a ton of respect for that. It's just that in execution, it doesn't feel good a lot of the time. 70% of the time, it, it's almost transcendent. It's, 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 it clicks and you feel like Trico's a living thing and you really start bonding with it. And there's some amazing puzzles uh, and amazing ways you have to you, you team up with Trico because he's a big kind of lumbering creature. He's not gigantic, but he's quite big. And you have to use him to navigate the environments in very interesting ways. Like one that jumps out to mind is just what I'm talking now, which is really interesting. With too many ages to figure out, but it's really good. Is you have to kind of you find this kind of lake area, or kind of a pond area, and you have to kind of just kind of mess around with him, and you have to get him to jump off a ledge into the water, whether just by him being playful or whatever, so that he displaces the water as he splashes into it. And when the when the wave goes up, you can get onto a higher ledge. And I just thought that was wonderful game design. Felt very. Um, not obvious, but very kind of true to all the elements you've been handed and all, all the kind of uh, keys to solving this puzzle. But the other 30% of the time, the game just ends up being frustrating because they did make him an animal who's unreliable and animalistic, but that doesn't feel good in a game sometimes. It's like, I know what I need to do. I need to get up in this ledge. I think I know how to do it, but the damn virtual animal that I'm hanging out with won't do the thing. And it's a very interesting um, idea a very interesting concept of like is technology good enough to to do this because as much as, as well as they represented this animal there's never a point where you're playing it you go wow this is a real animal i'm hanging out with i'm hanging out with a, a big griffin dog no you all you're always aware that you're hanging out with a, a digital entity a bunch of ones and zeros as good as the team at team eco did at creating this uh, creature and making it feel real you're never going to get past that level of going this is a real animal so when he's not doing the thing you want him to do it doesn't end up feeling like you're training an animal it feels so frustrating it's like you can see the ones and zeros just not doing the thing and then it slows the pace of the game down and it's not a very long game uh but it feels kind of longer than it needs to be because there's there's these choke points where like it's sometimes it's fun getting stuck in games it's fun trying to figure out but when you kind of know what you need to do and Trico is not doing it. It, it. It's frustrating. And it's a shame. So what, what I've landed on with that game is that it's um, a beautiful, ambitious effort. Um, so worthy. So interesting. So unique. That doesn't quite hit the mark. Uh, I couldn't put it higher than number eight on this list, even though I, I kind of love it. And I, I'm kind of sickened that it's forgotten as well. Because because I do think it's one of the most interesting games of the, of the PlayStation 4's library and that whole generation. But it is super forgotten, even to the point where um, Shadow of the Colossus, the previous game, got remade for the PlayStation 4 uh, by Bluepoint. And so a lot of people are kind of, you know, maybe younger people or people who missed uh, the Team Eco games from the PlayStation 2 era, they're kind of, the, the, their avenue to get into this company isn't The Last Guardian anymore. It's the remake of Shadow of the Colossus. So even um, Team Eco's previous game got remade and kind of overshadows a new game so I really do think that The Last Guardian is completely lost at this point and I, I think a lot of people don't really care I think it's um, very happy to disregard it and I get it because if someone like hated this game more than me I'd be like yeah yeah it just doesn't work but like I said in the structure of this early part of this list uh, I, I love an ambitious failure uh, more than um, a brilliantly made game that's a bit bland and I think uh, The Last Guardian is the height of 
ambitious failure and your failure is too harsh it, it, it's still a very good game it's one I, I wholeheartedly recommend but just go in knowing that um it's unnecessarily frustrating at times and it just doesn't quite work and i hate it doesn't quite work but it's a, it's a wonderful game that i think needs more of a spotlight shown on it and speaking of hugely ambitious triple a games made by beloved video game auteurs that doesn't quite click but is still crazy interesting and crazy unique gotta talk about death stranding and yeah, Death Stranding is number seven, and uh, Owen and I have discussed this game a little bit um, on this podcast because he was playing it for a bit. And I love Hideo Kojima. Um, if anyone's listened to this podcast, uh, we hey look, listen, are very pro Hideo Kojima. We kind of um, our foundation is built on Metal Gear, and uh, Death Stranding is a game that I love, even though I have a laundry list of problems with it. And a very interesting discussion sprouted from it. Um, it was kind of whether or not. Um, Hideo Kojima needs an editor or someone just at his side saying you know hey that's maybe that's a bit too crazy Kojima because at this point in his career uh, at the point when he was making Death Stranding at least he could do whatever he wanted uh, he, and uh, especially now this was out under the shadow of Konami he was making his own game with his own studio he wasn't even bound by the confines of Metal Gear Solid his own franchise and even though those confines were always very loose he could make whatever he wanted so he made an v- extremely imperfect, interesting game, and people started going, you know, someone needs to rein in Hideo Kojima, and he could start making some masterpieces here, or whatever. And I disagree. I I, I, it, I actually agree and I disagree. I, I agree to the point where I think all of Death Stranding's biggest problems come from Kojima's habits. Uh, some of them are bad habits, but for the most part, some of them are just habits that don't gel with this game he made. This this boss fight would be great in a Metal Gear Solid game, Kojima, but it doesn't work in this um, uh, virtual courier game. That kind of stuff. But I also really don't think that um, gaming as a, a medium, as an art form, I don't think it has enough auteurs who are working at this level, even, uh, for us to, to go... Oh yeah, yeah. Let's just kind of edit one of our, our ones that have got to a level where you can make whatever you want. Because so, I think you, I think you get someone like Kojima, you might not get a perfect game, but you're always going to get an interesting one out of him. So even though I think he, yeah, I do think there's a better version of Death Stranding out there that, uh, like in the multiverse, um, that that that's better because Kojima was reined in. I I would never do it to him because you're 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 going to get some fascinating things, and Death Stranding is nothing if not fascinating. Look, we've talked about it before. It's it's a virtual courier thing. You're you're a delivery man delivering packages across the kind of uh, wasteland of America, and um, it's an open world game. And some people despise the open worldness of it because it's you have to load packages onto your back. You have to lumber yourself. That affects your balance. So your character is extremely easy to fall over and fall into rivers and stuff like that. And the game is basically kind of walking from one point to the other and um, uh, navigating terrain. So while in some games you come to a river. It's a river, just walk over it. It, it. Coming to a river in Death Stranding is a huge deal because that's what the whole thing is about. But it's why I really respect it as an open world game because, you know, in a lot of open world games, uh, the, the the traversal can just be, you know, just faffing, just kind of wasting your time. It's going from A to B. Um, the fireworks factory is at B, uh, you got the mission at, at A, everything in between that is just you traveling there. But I think it's cool that Kojima came up with the idea of an open world game where the traveling is the game. As tedious as some people might find it, I think that's uh, that's really interesting. And the other aspect of it is that it's always online. There's other players who are doing the same thing you are, and you can help other players. You can leave a ladder behind in your game that will help another player in their game uh, maybe find an easier route. 
you can um, start pouring resources into building a road that you you won't get to um, uh, use in your game, but those resources will help another player. So it ends up being this um, extremely fascinating multiplayer experience, and it's it's definitely the best part of it. Kojima makes very uh, story-driven, cutscene-heavy games, and like at the end of this game, there's like a half an hour more of cutscene and like big, huge story climaxes and revelations, and it, it was cool enough. But I was kind of sitting there going, I've, I, I never, re- I don't, I didn't really connect with these characters all that much. And as much as I'm appreciating these last minute story twists and some, you know, some amazing acting, definitely some actors doing amazing work with extremely hammy dialogue. I, I just, I was kind of sitting there, um, you know, not, not emotional or anything. And, and then after that, uh, the story ends and then the, 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 that amazingly long cutscene, you, you have to do one last delivery and... The, the, the HUD from the game drops, the camera zooms out a little bit, and there's a song playing, this really melancholic song. And I was doing my last delivery. I'd done uh, dozens of them throughout the game, and I was just walking through this kind of empty, barren wasteland, uh, and I felt like at the end of the game, and I got super emotional. I got super emotional through his gameplay, and, and Kojima tries to wring emotions out of you through cutscenes. Usually, he's he's very inspired by films, but I... I Death Stranding got me at the end of it, and I started to realize that I was going to miss the navigation part of this game. I was going to miss the kind of loneliness of it. It was a very evocative game, and it really kind of took me by surprise of how kind of into it I was. And it's definitely that multiplayer aspect is one of the most interesting parts of it, and the most memorable, most emotional parts of it. And it's a really fascinating, brilliant idea. I'm going, to, I'm going to call every game fascinating on this list from now on. But this is also a game that has a monster energy drink sponsorship and where you, your main character drinks monster and you and you fight bosses. And like I said, the bosses don't work when, you, when it's a game built around being a courier and walking across a, a barren wasteland. But every time you get hit, you lose all your packages and you've got to pick them up. And that can be exciting if you fall down a snowy mountain and it's kind of like, oh shit, my packages, and you've got to kind of scramble to pick them all up but when you're fighting a boss and every time he hits you you lose it doesn't work he put Metal Gear Solid bosses into a Death Stranding game and yeah he needed to dial back I don't think he should be dialed back but Death Stranding would be uh, a better game if he took out the Metal Gearness of it certainly but um it's another kind of case of The Last Guardian where I love it I do think it's one of the best games of this generation but when I was kind of forming this list I was like I can't put it any higher than here um, that would be disingenuous to the games that come after it, but you know, I think Owen sold it really well when he was playing the first few hours as well. And this podcast, if anyone's listening to this podcast who is anyway fascinated by it, I do recommend it because it sold very poorly. And I think a lot of people kind of, I don't know, got the kind of wrong end of the stick with it. I think it's better than its reputation, certainly, even if it's a, a strange one. Okay, we're heading into the top six, which I've already said are kind of games that you know I just think they're super neat. And um, why not talk very briefly about a game that I've talked at length about, not once in this podcast, but twice. I've managed to find a third opportunity to talk about the Final Fantasy VII Remake. And I'm not sure what else more I have to say about it at this point. It's a 30 to 40 hour long game that only adapts like the first four or five hours of the original Final Fantasy VII. But it adds so much detail to the, the, the world, the setting and the story. It's um, a brilliant modern interpretation of at least the four main characters. They're they're very well written. Uh, they're very well portrayed. And like the writing in Final Fantasy VII Remake as a whole is a little bit ropey, but 
they understand the characters they understand the character relationships and as uh, someone who played the game when i was young it was like really satisfying really exciting to see that done well because square enix are not a company who are definitely going to get characters right uh they they don't always make great characters so it was fantastic seeing cloud Aerith, tifa barrett um portrayed so well it very sacrilegiously gets rid of the turn-based combat from the original final Fantasy 7 in in favor of an almost hybrid combat system which is action focused um you're going up and you're hitting um enemies with your weapons but you can also freeze at any point to um put through magic spells and items on on a menu and i i've said before i think square enix have been experimenting with moving away from turn-based combat for so long they, they, they for years and years they seem to that's not we don't want it we, we know that's what you know us for but we don't want to do that anymore and i think final Fantasy VII remake is the first time i saw um, a version of their combat system that was like uh, maybe go okay i finally i'll finally allow you to move away from the classic stuff you've you found a combat system that really works for me but yeah look uh owen and i did an episode uh final fantasy 7 and its remake i did an episode uh, ranking all the final fantasy games and i had that in it as well it's been heavily covered on the hey look listen podcast i think um it's a fantastic game it was a game super important to me because final fantasy 7 was my childhood but also uh, this game came out in the height of 2020 during the pandemic so it was i'll always remember it for that of, of a, a very cool thing that happened at a very bad time it, it, it always stick. i think for a lot of people it's animal crossing is the pandemic game but it'll always i'll always remember final fantasy 7 remake as like the one i have a ton of love for it i think it's imperfect uh but i'm very excited to see what they do next because it's, it's going to get a sequel um in 10 years in 20 years or something and I don't know if I have anything else to say about it at this point, uh, except I think one detail I didn't bring up either of the other two times is that the characters are too hot in this game. And I think that's a criticism. And I wrote a letter to Square Enix. I was like, hello, Mr. Square Enix. Can you stop putting attractive characters in your video games, please? Technology has come too far and now they're too hot. And I'm still waiting for a reply on that, but when I do, I will make a Hey Look Listen episode about it. Actually, uh, extracurricular work, actually, everyone look up uh, Robert Pattinson recently on the Batman press tour, um, talking about uh, the huge crushes he used to have on Aeris and Tifa, and talking about, I, I don't know, he, he, he just has so much to say about the dynamic uh, between uh, Aerith and Tifa from Final Fantasy VII, so look that up. And yeah, Final Fantasy VII Remake, uh, brilliant, it's my number six. Boom, number five. How about another game that we have done on an entire episode of Hey Look Listen? Me, Marcy, and Owen chatted about not it, but its entire franchise. It is Uncharted 4 at Thief's End. And I think one of my main points I had to say about that at the time, and I still think, is that it's a wonderful uh, sequel in the sense that it actually makes the previous three games better, and that's an amazing trick to pull off. The story is so much more emotional in comparison to the other three that it actually kind of sweeps the other three into it and kind of, you know, retroactively makes the, the Uncharted games, the Uncharted series, this hugely emotional experience. It's uh, so much um, more character driven than the other ones. I mean, they're all, they all have great characters from, from day one, like Sully, Elena, Nathan, but um, they're Indiana Jones pastiches. They're fun adventure flicks, while I think Uncharted 4 really does tap into a more human element really wonderfully. And those first four Uncharted games feel like such a an evolution, except for three. I think one uh, one is, is 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 a bit flawed and dated, and two is a huge uh, kind of um, refinement and evolution of that. And then three kind of um, spins its wheels, and then four is a kind of the final kind of stage of kind of evolution of this franchise, and it gives a good kind of arc to the whole franchise. And I just love this game. 
I sometimes just watch cutscenes from it on YouTube. I love watching the ending. I love streamers reacting to the ending and getting all emotional because it really does come out of nowhere. You don't think you're going to care as much as you desperate. When you're playing The Last of Us, you're there to cry. You're there to feel emotions. You know it's going to be this kind of uh, emotionally exhausting thing. And then Uncharted 4 sneaks up on you. And the ending is, you know, it's super emotional and it's, it's also super satisfying. But just as an action game, this is Naughty Dog just coming firing at all cylinders it's 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 the set pieces are they range from like big blockbuster events to like really kind of small moments like i would consider the small moments in this as set pieces as well just finding an, an ancient church and just spending 20 minutes strolling around and getting uh story and backstory from like just the visual language of of, of the level design uh, naughty dog are fantastic at that but yeah, going into this list, I knew I was going to run into games that we've heavily covered on Halo Kiss. I still think this is a worthy list I wanted to do. I wanted to do the quintessential top 10 PlayStation 4 games. And this is the quintessential list. You can't tell me otherwise. But yeah, I'd just like to direct you to our Uncharted series episode, which will cover um, not only my love for that Uncharted 4, but uh, Ona Marcy's as well in, in much greater detail. Um, we're at the point now, actually, we're at the point with Final, Final Fantasy VII Remake as well, where i put Final Fantasy VII Remake at 6, I've put Uncharted 4 at 5, but it's like, they could be 1 and 2, they could be, these 6 games I'm, I'm getting into now I just think are all fantastic and it's really just, you know, opinion of, you know, what's better than what, but me putting um, 4 games above Uncharted 4 doesn't take away from the fact that I really do think this is a masterpiece and in terms of its genre, linear, story-driven kind of action blockbusters, you know, you want to sit down, you want to kind of play um something a little bit mindless or something that just kind of brings you along and a good old roller coaster i do think this is the best game you could ever play to do that i think uh, it's naughty dog kind of uh perfecting a type of game and that's always exciting to see but yeah i think i'll, I'll keep going um watch our uncharted episode listen to it even we don't have visuals actually before i get into the top four um a word from our sponsor uh they 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 did a little, they wrote a little skit that they gave me that they uh, this would be easier if I had the lads with me but um okay. oh that was offside that wasn't offside what match are you watching I'm watching the same match as you we're two best friends in a pub in Bristol well I can't believe a best friend of mine wouldn't know how the offside rule works oh you cheeky blighter oh I have an idea go on what you thinking why don't we check pitchmeeting.com to see what people are talking about in regards to this match. But Craig, yes Ian, don't they just talk about old matches on pitchmeeting.com? No, they talk about anything that's current as well, including something that's just happening right now. Let's see what they're saying. Well don't keep me in suspense you blighter, what are they saying? You won't believe this. What? They can't agree either. Oh, I guess just like us, they love football and are best friends, even though they don't agree. Yep. Pitchmeeting.com. It's all balls. Okay, number four. You better wake up, get up, get out there. You'll never see it coming. Those are song lyrics from the game Persona 5, because number 4 is Persona 5. In order to enjoy Persona 5, and Persona as a series in general, you've got to wade quite deeply into some anime nonsense. But if you can cross that hurdle, 
I genuinely, unironically think that Persona is doing some of the most fascinating interactive storytelling in, in all of gaming and Persona 5 is just a, a shining example of that. The premise of Persona 5 is that you're a cool teenager who's been expelled from school and you're sent to live in Tokyo where you go to a new school and you start, you know, making friends but there's some supernatural shit going on in the form of you all get this this app on your phone that lets you go into um, these interdimensional palaces that are representations of really bad adults inner souls and you've got to go into these palaces and cleanse them of all the wrongdoing it's some really heady nonsensical shit so for example and this is actually very emblematic of the balancing act that persona 5 attempts that it doesn't always quite succeed in the first kind of arc of the game is that your new school has a a, a PE teacher who is an absolute dickhead monster who may or may not be abusing kids at the school and you end up entering his palace, which is a, a, a form of the school that's like a, ca- a version of the school that's a castle where he reigns. And this is like super interesting stuff because you, you get to play out that level then. And it's like all representation of this like vile man. And that's interesting. But it's also Persona 5 is very brightly colored anime tomfoolery. It can, can it can it can it maturely depict these things? And yes and no. And I think. In, in its attempt, it kind of, it, it finds a, a, a kind of comfortable middle ground, but it's not quite as mature as it thinks it is. But I just wanted to bring that up because that's the kind of stuff that Persona 5 is about. And I find that really cool and interesting. I think it's it's super unique. And all that stuff is balanced with, uh, you have to live literally each calendar day. So while you're kind of, you know, planning with your friends, of when, when are we going to go into this, you know, evil man's metaphysical palace and, you know, defeat him you also have to kind of live your life you got to go to school you got to study you got to you know do laundry so it's it's very domestic and it's very methodical like that and that's why I think it's one of the few 100 hour plus games that for me kind of justifies it's it's, it's really long length because it's kind of uh structured in a very palatable way you're going like uh, you're making decisions day by day but also the game is very much split up like like a tv series there's very um clear kind of episodes and I I just found myself being utterly engrossed in this game in ways I have been with few other games Uh, I just when I was playing this game and I played it late I didn't play it when it released I played it a couple years after I was just that was my it was my main thing I I honestly do feel like to the detriment of my life I, I was just obsessed with this game while I was playing it I think it is one of the coolest funnest games ever made I love the characters I love the art style, I love the music, oh my god, the music is unbelievable in this game. And like I said, I just love the premise. And I think the premise, while kind of, like I said, being a little bit maybe uh, too mature for its own good, it rings some like very fascinating themes out of it. And I don't think it would work outside the medium of games. And it's interesting because Persona 5 was adapted into an anime. And I would recommend anyone like don't watch that anime. I think if you remove the interactive element from Persona 5 and just have just a narr- just a straight narrative, yeah, I don't think it's very good at all, to be honest. But because it's this interactive thing, because you're immersed in this world, because you've got to live in this um, story literally day by day and your decisions are affecting things, it becomes incredibly absorbing and engrossing. And I love the way its gameplay is tangled up with its story because the stuff you do in the real world, like who you hang out with, who you become really good friends with, what you decide to do on a day-to-day basis starts affecting 
the combat because this is a jrpg this is like you know final fantasy or whatever this is a turn-based battle system fighting monsters equipping weapons and i love the way they tangled up the two things i love the way um one the story really complements the gameplay in a brilliant way in a way i haven't seen in a lot of games and more game developers more uh, designers should really uh, endeavor to do this when you start like tangling up uh the story and the characters directly with uh the gameplay you can't lose because you're, you're almost like poking two parts of a player's brain at one point and it's built around this idea that strengthening your bond with characters will strengthen you in battle it will make these characters stronger in battle or it will give you other beneficial buffs so yeah you could want to hang around with a particular character because you like them this is what maybe one of your favorite characters in the game or you could want to hang out with this character and strengthen your bond with them because you want to improve them in battle uh, on the gameplay side of things and what eventually starts happening is honestly you want to do both and it's kind of overwhelming because there's so many kind of decisions. And it, this is a game, like I said, each day passes and you have to make decisions what you do each day. And it can kind of be quite, can become quite overwhelming. Like I, there's, there's so many options. Am I doing the right thing? But the kind of secret to Persona 5 is that despite the fact that it's quite overwhelming and there's a ton of options and it might be kind of um, difficult to kind of get into because of that, is that you really can't fail. It's a very uh, generous game towards the player. No matter what you decide to do, if you decide to ignore all that, you know, strengthening characters in the gameplay, you know, I, you just, I just want to hang out with this character because I think this is the coolest character. I want to, like, do this for this day because this is, seems like the funnest activity. You'll be fine. You absolutely, you'll absolutely be fine. But if you want to be more strategic about it as well and kind of balance those two things, the kind of passing of the calendar day month by month becomes this engrossing game of strategy and it really is silly like it's it's silly in a like <laughs> very fun video game way, game way you start saying things like okay on on monday i can do my laundry uh on tuesday i'll hang out with this character uh maybe on wednesday i'll go eat a burger so i can get these stats up it is a nonsense like that eating burgers doing laundry all these things have uh different benefits in different ways but you do start like really when you really start getting into it you start planning all how to juggle all these things and when to do things and I find Persona 5 extremely hard to put down once you get into it. This is a quintessential, oh shit, I've been playing this game for 10 hours now kind of game. And like, I haven't played all the Persona games. I've only played three of them, um, but they are amongst uh, my favorite games of all time. And it's crazy that I haven't talked about them that much on this podcast yet. And uh, I'd love to do an episode on them sometime. That could That could be fun. But like, there is a really like big reason why I'm putting Persona 5 above uncharted above final fantasy 7 remake i i i'm finding it a, i'm finding tough to kind of sell it but it is excellent and uh, my girlfriend fiona who i mean she plays games but she doesn't like play loads and loads of games uh she uh, she absolutely took to persona 5 and uh, like she finished it she like played like 100 hours which she absolutely loved it and like initially it, it, it was a hard sell it's like what what is this why why do i have to do laundry i do laundry in real life why do i have to do anime laundry but I'm telling you, everyone, you'll want to do anime laundry in this game. And if, if that's not the most important thing, I don't, I don't know what is. But I genuinely think Persona 5 is a modern masterpiece. It's not... I'm talking about it like it's like niche underground thing. Um, it became really mainstream. It got really big and super successful and really kind of um, shone a new light on this franchise. But I do think there's a lot of people who might, you know, look at it and the aesthetics might, might be a bit too much to anime and like the idea of it but i do think it's just, it's a brilliant modern masterpiece one of the best jrpgs ever played and also one of the best 
just interactive stories and like I think on hey look listen we often end up talking about story driven games like between the three of us that's what we love the most I think and this is one of the all-time best ones and not only that it's just one of the best concepts in telling a story through a video game filtering it through a video game which is why I would reiterate don't watch the anime don't watch the anime okay number three and honestly I think for a lot of people this is the clear number one. This, if, if there's any PlayStation exclusive that you can put up on a pedestal that uh, defines that generation, but it also is just you know uh, I don't know, cross the board excellent game. What a, like what a, like what a perfect game to hold up as a representative of, of PlayStation Four. I think it's it would be this game, and I am not putting it number one. I'm putting it number three. And just at the preface, despite the fact that I think I prefer two games over it, it is an outright masterpiece and just one of those games that makes you excited for game design and and excited because you can like like when i talked about spider-man and ghost of Tsushima earlier on is sometimes you know i get worried about i i love indie games as much as next man and i think that's where some of the best stuff is happening i'll always point towards indie games but you know i i have a i have a monkey brain i like amazing graphics and big production values and sometimes i'm worried that to get those things, you kind of have to trade um, maybe a little bit more less interesting games. But then you get a game like God of War. And I think the brief of this game must have been to make a mature reboot of an uh, adolescent game franchise. And I'm a big fan of the original God of War trilogy. I was a huge fan of them back in the PS2 days. I think they're great. I think they are what they are. They have a really good combat system. And they're this kind of, you know, gleefully, childishly violent interpretation of the greek mythology where you play as an angry man who kills the entire greek pantheon by the end of it but this one has a lot more in its mind it's about fathers and sons and it, it is like i said it's, it's both a reboot and a sequel of those original god of war games and this time it's set in um in around norse mythology and it is so clearly influenced by the playstation 3 era and the type of games that started getting made on that in that era especially by naughty dog i think you look at uncharted you look at especially the last of us and you can kind of see the dna that led to this new version of god of war which is more uh, narrative driven and and also has a much better narrative it's like the the, the, the story of kratos and his son atreus uh, traveling to a mountain to spread uh, his wife and his mother's ashes and getting into crazy adventures along the way it's just honestly like um i'm, I'm simplifying it <laughs> but it is one of the best uh, video game stories certainly of the last few years probably of all time and it's because of the characters uh the atreus and kratos are two of the best drawn characters in gaming history and which is a tough thing to do with kratos because kratos is just an asshole in the original games he's fun to inhabit but they do kind of uh cross the threshold a couple of times of of just into unpleasantness uh, he's just he he can he's oh he's he's fun he's killing Poseidon he, by gouging out his eyes or whatever haha <laughs> but then there's just some really unpleasant things they make him do yeah and and the reasons they make him do is just kind of that gleeful kind of just oh, video game fun fun video game violence but across the line sometimes so it's hard to make this character um, if not sympathetic um, relatable human and it's, and they absolutely pull it off and it's all done through his. Uh, relationship with his son Atreus uh, and Atreus is kind of you know learning who, who he is and kind of uh, growing as a person but grow, growing more violent because his father is like the most violent person in the goddamn world and 
Kratos is trying to try to temper his son's power, his son's violence uh, into something that's not him, something more controllable, something more manageable, and that's a brilliant arc. And the creator of this game, Corey Barlog, uh, became a father in between working on the old God of Wars and, and this one, and it's uh, clearly this is um, a subject matter he's, he was very passionate about. And I, you know, hey look, listen, fact number 15 about Liam Sheehan, I don't give a shit about parenthood ain't me but i do give a shit about stories that ring true and they absolutely evolve from a very real place from the author and there is something despite this being a big violent grim fantasy world there is something so small about the story and so well drawn so well represented and they're just achingly real these two main characters and so are the likes of Joel and Ellie in The Last of Us and their growing relationship. And uh, the growing relationship between Kratos and Atreus is very similar to that. And it's definitely, definitely was inspired by it. But I almost prefer Kratos and Atreus than the Joel and Ellie relationship. And one of the main reasons of that is because I think uh, the team at God of War, they managed to tangle that relationship up to the gameplay in a little bit more interesting way. Atreus, is, he's not only just someone you're protecting, he's, he's your ally. And he becomes an ally in combat as it goes on. And the, the closer the relationship between Kratos and Atreus becomes, he ends up becoming more useful as like a video game NPC, as a kind of a partner in the game. And I think that's really cool. And that's, you know, I can go on about the, the story a lot. It, it's fantastic and the characters, but the gameplay is also incredible in this game. In the old ones, they made one of gaming's most iconic weapons ever, the Blades of Chaos, which are these two blades that are attached to chains and Kratos' arms that he swings around and they have amazing momentum and weight to them and they're just so satisfying to just brutalize gorgons or whatever with. But this time they were just like, we made one of the most uh, iconic weapons of all time, let's just do it again with the Leviathan axe, um, similar to Thor's hammer. It's just this axe you can hurl and have it fly back into Kratos' hand and it, it's such a malleable weapon in terms of how it can be used in gameplay and combat and puzzles and so much of the game uh the game design is is based around that axe in such a concise way it's so clever it's so clever to kind of have this big action adventure game but kind of boil it down to a simple mechanic and that that's not a criticism it's, it's not like it's simple and dumb it's incredibly clever in fact and the combat itself is just this you know from an outside perspective if you're sitting down and watching someone play God of War, it almost looks button mashy. It just looks like a kind of a maelstrom of colors and attacks and just kind of, you know, the player doesn't know what he's doing. But I think the key to the success of God of War's combat is that it's, it, it both looks like a crazy brawl, like absolute just anarchy on the screen. But when you're actually playing it, it's, you know, every, every move you're doing is precise and methodical. The combat system is made in such a way where you're not just going in there and pressing, you know, hoping or pressing square and hoping you kill something with an axe. You, you're going in, you're making very precise moves. And the more um, skills you learn throughout that game, the better the combat becomes. And when it starts throwing more elaborate, difficult enemies at you and enemy combinations, it just uh, meshes so well with your evolving skill set, both in what you're learning, what Kratos is learning, and both you, the player, using your hands on the PlayStation controller, you're getting better. And I think there's a good arc to the combat in God of War. And I think it's one of the kind of maybe not not hidden, but maybe less talked about reasons why it's such a masterpiece is that it has one of the best measured combat systems in gaming history and one of my favorites. Just aesthetically, like I said, it feels so exciting and visceral and it's violent and it's cluttered and fast. But you're not your brain isn't switching off while you're while you're doing it. You're you're very methodically fighting and I, I love it. I kind of wish I was playing it right now. Actually, that would be so fun.
and despite the fact that it's um, a big loud um, action game there's a big RPG element to it there's uh, a lot of scrolling through a menu in this game and you know equipping different skills and equipment to Kratos which is a really cool evolution from the old from the old game but it's one criticism I'd have I would dial it down a little bit especially since um this game has a really unique uh, thing where it's it's all it, the whole game is made to look like it's one tracking shot through the whole game the camera never cuts and that's going from cutscene to gameplay it never cuts and it's supposed to kind of uh better kind of add clarity to the very uh, precise direct journey that kratos and atreus are making in this game so the camera never cuts away and i think the amount of time you spend in a menu in this game actually kind of uh takes away from that little neat um idea that they came up with the game has no cuts but it feels like it's cutting a lot because there's a lot of shops in this game a lot of menu scrolling i'm not against the idea of um god of war as a franchise becoming more um leaning more into rpg elements and I, I think it's great that you can customize kratos and your attacks but um i dial it down a little bit it's a little bit too much for what the game is in my opinion and that but that's just me kind of struggling to find a, a negative in this game this really was I remember when it came out in 2018 and just playing it and it just felt like this is going to be on like this is going to be in the conversation of gaming for a long time as just the quintessential mainstream I don't know I almost said mainstream action game but just mainstream game and for me who's hasn't been hadn't been thoroughly enjoying a lot of mainstream games god, god damn I'm playing them and like getting my money's worth and enjoying it but like you know not having my I like having my life changed by games I was just so blown away by God of War and as a fan of the original games and I really am a fan of those original games I don't really want to go into them now but they're, rep- they're, they're better than their reputation is all I'll say um, but it just knocks them out of the water and it almost makes them irrelevant by comparison it's, it's such a better game and I think the key to that was um, they knew to like maybe the player base who, who grew up playing God of War they knew to make this game more grown up and mature and despite the fact that you're hurling axes at trolls faces and all that nonsense it is an incredibly mature game in its writing and an incredibly um just excellent game in its design and like i like i said i'm putting this at number three but it doesn't take away from the fact that it's absolutely incredible uh i think it might be just pound for pound maybe the best game on this list but the two i'm putting ahead of it i just i just prefer and that that's just that's how lists work you knew what you're getting yourselves into this is how lists work but god of war masterpiece and here we are at number two and i don't think it's possible to have talked about a game more on this podcast it's come up so many times it's probably the most game we've uh, the game sorry the game we've talked about most on the on this podcast yet here i am talking about it again but i'll, I'll I, you know what i'm gonna make it very quick this time um my number two game is the highly controversial highly divisive but highly brilliant the last of us part two and to some people putting the last of us part two above god of war which is while being a masterpiece is also the cleaner safer game than uh than than the last of us two which made a lot of weird decisions there would be a sacrilegious controversial choice to put it above that but i do i do prefer it i i I didn't even wrestle with this one. I was like, you know what? God of War is fantastic, but I just preferred Last of Us 2. And I replayed it there after Christmas and just kind of reaffirmed my love for this game. And to kind of reiterate what I said with God of War, uh, but to a, a much greater extent, if we're going to get, you know, big big story-driven games, quote-unquote story-driven games from um, AAA companies, like they did a, a PlayStation um, online thing there recently enough or a few months ago. And they were saying, 
were committed to making story-driven games. Like this is this is what they this is what they're known for now. And I think, and not not to poo-poo these games, but I think if if they're going to make story-driven games, we need games that are better than Ghost of Tsushima. We need games that are better than Horizon Zero Dawn. Games that are better than um, Spider-Man in the story department. These are all fantastic games, but you know, stop making average enough stories. I think think the weird thing about the medium of video games is I think it holds up mediocre stories better because a mediocre story can be slotted into all this other magic the the the, the world you know uh, it just uh, inhabiting the world as a player rather than you know being a spect- spectator to it and the mechanics and everything else but you you actually like boil it down the the narrative itself in a lot of big narrative driven games are fine they're good they're like good enough which is why I um, adore The Last of Us 2 for like, you know, whatever, like the argument about whether or not it's a good story or not. It's not a safe one. It, it's completely um, unconventional and surprising. And I, I, I was playing a big budget action game, not knowing where the story was going to go. Like literally not knowing who was going to survive, who was safe, what plot development was going to happen, what twist. And that's a special thing. And I'll always love The Last of Us 2 for that. And more companies... If they're going to advertise themselves like we're making story-driven games, we're a story-driven um, company, then you need to be making stuff like Last of Us 2 that aren't safe, that are interesting, that are different. And I like, I love Spider-Man, but who cares? <laughs> oh no, I'm talking negative about Spider-Man again. No, I don't, I don't mean to. But yeah, but like, who cares? <laughs> it's a fine story. It's good. Take, it, take, take the Spider-Man story out of the game and yeah, yeah, I can't believe I'm talking negative about Spider-Man again. This is off the cuff, you see. But I just do think um, The Last of Us 2 story, despite the controversies, some controversies are led to interesting discussions. Some of them revealed um, bigotry, um, whatever. Despite all that, I just think at least it was unexpected and radical and different and I, I i i replayed it there after christmas like i said and i was wondering is the story of last of us part two as good when you know what's coming you know because the first time you played it so visceral you either you either kind of shocked by the events that are occurring and you kind of hate it for it or you kind of you're, you're you almost get mesmerized by like a deer in headlights but uh yes uh the the, the story structure i love it um uh, and I love the story structure of the game. It's about um, changing the main focus, uh, the main player character halfway through. I love, I love that. Like that wouldn't be as good in a film, uh, in, in in just in this case because it, it's it's making you play as a villain halfway through and kind of you know almost like in a whip in a whiplash kind of manner. You've been playing for Ellie for hours and now you're playing as Abby for hours. And they could have kind of jumped between them. Here's Ellie for a few hours. Here's Abby for a few hours, and uh, that would be kind of you know very much uh, be much clearer like oh look how these characters mirror each other maybe Abby isn't as bad as all that maybe Ellie is a villain to Abby and that would be doing the work for the player the whiplash of, of just suddenly you have to play as Abby this horrible character in your eyes who kills one of your most beloved characters who Ellie has been trying to kill for the entire game and you have to play her and you're put in her shoes you have to inhabit her you have to level up her abilities you got to equip weapons to her you got to do all those game things as well as narrative things and uh, for you to have to kind of learn to empathize with her or not it doesn't matter if you do or you don't it's not a failing if if you hate abby by the end of that game still uh, it's not a failing of you i mean not a failing of the designer it doesn't take away from how interesting that experiment is to almost kind of 
wrestle a player into inhabiting a character that they would never want to inhabit but then taking the time to humanize that character that is brilliant it remains brilliant and it like the last of us 2 is brilliant and you know i'm tired of kind of pussyfooting around and kind of saying like oh, I, I, I guess some people might no no i'm not i, I actually understand completely why the last of us 2 is divisive but we brought it up multiple times in this podcast now that uh, I don't think don't think it's anywhere near bad. In fact, I think it's uh, one of the best games of the last ten years. Certainly, AAA action blockbuster esque video game. It's kind of the the top of the crowd as far as I'm concerned. And if you don't like it, well, and that's fine. That's absolutely fine. I can't believe you think Robert Carlos's free kick for Brazil against France in 1997 is the best goal of all time, Craig. And I can't believe that you think Marco van Basten for Holland against the USSR in 1998 is the best goal of all time, Ian. Will we ever agree? <laughs> Not likely, mate. <laughs> hey, yeah, let's see what people are saying on this subject at pitchmeeting.com. That's a good idea. Well, one lad on here is saying it's Diego Maradona against England in 1986 is the best goal ever. The same one with the handball. Is he having a laugh? I don't agree with him, but I think it's great that we can use this forum to see what other football fans that are over the age of 35 but below the age of 75 are saying. I think so too. I love you, man. What did you say? I said I love man you. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm going to get another pint. Do you want anything? Uh, a pint of bitter, please, mate. All right, back in a second. Idiot. Stupid. Stupid Craig. Stupid. Pitchmeeting.com. It's all balls. Okay, now we've reached number one of the list. And is there any more anticlimactic way to end a top ten list than not only talking about a game that has already been covered on this podcast, but talking about a game that was covered last week on this podcast? Like I said on the last episode, uh, I'm new to Bloodborne. I've only played it for the first time recently, which is why it's such a shock to my system that I would place it above The Last of Us 2, God of War, and Uncharted, and Persona, but I really just want to emphasize how good this thing is. And yeah, please listen to our last episode. Uh, my good buddy Kev O'Carroll joined me for it, and I, I really like that episode. Um, but yeah, I'm putting Bloodborne at number one because I genuinely think it's the best PlayStation 4 game ever made, and is there any better reason than that? And yeah, it's the simplicity but precision of the combat, it's the world building, it's the setting itself, it's how the narrative is told through the, the world and the gameplay and the item description, it's everything. For me, it was a perfect storm. And I just got completely into this game and completely smitten with it. And I wonder if I made this top 10 list a year from now, would the afterglow have worn off? I'd be like, oh, I only put Bloodborne at number one because I just played that game. But I, you know, funnily enough, I don't think so. I really do think this is the deserving number one. I think it's like the crown of the uh, PlayStation 4 exclusives, even more so than God of War, which I think I think I said this almost the same thing on that. I just think it's um, a work of pure passion. And I don't think we mentioned all that much in the last episode that the designer himself, Hedetake Miyazaki, who's just this absolute wonderful game designer and such, such a natural. And the fact that his influence has spread so far through the industry just from sheer from sheer audacity like he he got a job in the game industry and uh got given demon souls and just like i'm gonna make this exactly what i wanted to be you know and it, it, it broke all conventions and now 
the Soulsborne game, quote-unquote, has just become one of the most influential genres ever made. And Bloodborne is like a, the centerpiece of that. I'm playing at the moment Elden Ring, and Elden Ring is an out-and-out -out masterpiece. It's, it's one of my favourite games I've ever played, I think, but I still don't think it's as good as Bloodborne. I, I think I think Bloodborne, there's just something to it. And, and it's famously difficult. It's, you know, really challenging, but there is a wonderful pacing to this game of when it decides to kind of pile on the difficulty and the challenge to when it kind of lets you coast and you don't really realize you're coasting but it's definitely giving you a moment of kind of quieter exploration or least challenging battles which makes it a very very difficult game to put down a very um absorbing game and uh, listen up i know like i said it's it's kind of anticlimactic but me and kev did an episode on that last week i, I i'd implore you to listen to that and i would never be able to um kind of explain its wonders as good as I did when I, uh, I had Kev to work off of. And um, he's a very good podcast voice, which was annoying when I edited it, you know. I feel like my whole uh, thing of doing Hey Look Listen has been kind of fighting against my voice. Of just, you know, trying to, you know, maybe put my passion into it as much as I can to overshadow the fact that like my voice is not made for podcasts. Thanks for listening to my silly ass clown voice everyone then i do like one like my friend kev guest guest host for one episode of me and i'm just like my god i'm gonna have a voice for podcasting same with morrissey and owen actually i edit the episodes i'm just like look at these with their perfect diction and their very pleasant voices listen to and then i'm just like i like the last guardian but no i'm going off track here because i think i i don't think i have much more to say about bloodborne the fact that i just just by emphasis just by comparison to the other games on this list and how much I love them I need to kind of emphasize how much I love Bloodborne I really do I'm not I'm not just kind of trying to uh jump on the kind of current times bandwagon Elden Ring is the biggest game at the moment that Soulsborne games are kind of very much in the the lexicon at the moment and uh, no I do think this is better than Last of Us Part 2 I do think it's better than Uncharted 5 I do think it's better than Persona I do think it's better than Final Fantasy yada 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 it is just a, a masterpiece of a game that I'm so happy I discovered you know, laid into its own life. It's seven years old. And now I get to join the throng of people who apparently have been just, you know, pining for a Bloodborne sequel for the last seven years. Now I get to join those, even though I have so many From Software games ahead of me. After Elden Ring, I plan on playing Dark Souls and then maybe Sekiro. But um, I, at this point, and just you know, recording myself for posterity, but also because it's a podcast, I wonder, I can't I can't imagine any of those games over. Uh, overshadowing bloodborne me or be or, or i can't imagine myself finding any of them better in bloodborne i'm saying this now on the 23rd of march you know we'll see in a while after i play them but i really like i said last week's episode with kev it inspired me it made me happy about games and game design it was just one of those games that i 100 percent truly loved and i know i love it forever i was looking up an art book because i want i want to own things bloodborne now and it was going for like a grand online and i was like i guess i'm not buying that art book but you know you know you love a game when you're looking up art books online and you know wishing you could buy them that's a sign of a very good game so that's it uh thank you for joining me for this list of playstation 4 games and i think now that the list is done um i just have to say that when i kind of you know i had games i wanted to talk about i kind of pretty much knew what games were going to be on this list but i did look up playstation 4 exclusive and i was really kind of bowled over by how many good ones like are there are there's so many more than 10 so if you're like a big playstation 4 fan you're waiting for some game that wasn't on this list you know it, it really just is because there's so many good games i think 
the fact even that I did this list without Horizon Zero Dawn, you know, it's one of the most iconic PlayStation 4 games. Aloy almost became the face of the PlayStation 4 and Sony itself. Uh, um, it, it, there was no room for it. Uh, Ratchet and Clank, I'm a big Ratchet and Clank fan, and there are so many more. Uh, these are um, 10 fantastic games. Uh, I recommend all of them, and more so than anything else. And the main thing I want to get through in this episode of the podcast is pitchmeeting.com thank you so much uh, everyone for listening and i'll see you next time bye bye